Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court, uh, the vacancy, the nomination, and the upcoming battles and what that all means, and also the broader picture of Supreme Court fights and and what that means for the country. And so joining us to discuss that, we have uh, repeat Urbane, Urbane Cowboys champion guest Ilya Shapiro who is the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. He's the publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. But wait, there's more. He's also the author of Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court Out This Year Perfectly Timed. So welcome to the program. Thanks. Uh, Glad to be back. And yeah, my publisher had to pay extra for this timing. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, I should say that we are recording this on Thursday, September the 24th. It will not, the episode will not be out until Monday, September the 28th. And in between those two dates comes Saturday, September the 26th, when President Trump will officially announce who he is nominating to fill the Supreme Court vacancy created by the uh, sad death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So keep keeping in mind that you, dear listeners, know who Trump has nominated. We, recording this, do not. Um, Ilya, why did Trump make the right choice in choosing who to nominate? <laughs> well, uh, she's a jurist of uh, inestimable <laughs> esteem. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the politics of this will will go down about the same, uh, regardless of who the nominee ultimately is, because the Democrats are going are making a process argument that this close to an election, that uh, the confirmation shouldn't happen, particularly in light of the precedent from four years earlier, where of course Mitch McConnell held the seat open for uh, seven months uh, or nine months from Justice Scalia's death until the election. And beyond, and then there's this whole argument about well, actually, historically, when the same party controls the Senate and the White House, uh, 17 of 19 times there have been confirmations, and when the opposite party controls, only one out of 10 times has there been a, a confirmation. So it's par for the course, and it's pure uh, politics. And we all get to call everyone hypocrites and uh, and go on uh, with our day. Um, but just recently, just over the course of this week, we've seen some shifts. Initially, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, the most moderate members of the Republican caucus, said that they were not for uh, uh, filling this seat. Murkowski then went back on that. Romney said that he would uh, take up the, the confirmation and evaluate the candidate. And then Joe Manchin of the Democrats said, look, uh, I'm going to evaluate the candidate on her merits and I'm against the court packing or getting rid of the filibuster because that's what's looming in the background. If the uh, Republicans pursue uh, what what the Democrats might consider to be a further escalation in the judicial wars by making this confirmation, then will they retaliate with court packing, expanding the court, assuming they 
win the uh, both the White House uh, and the Senate. But but anyway, um, you know, it's come down to Amy Coney Barrett and Barbara Lagoa, and and you, dear listener, will know whether, which one of those, or whether it's some some other dark horse. Yeah, let's. So I want to talk about uh, all of that about court packing, about uh, Senate fights and, and whatnot. Perhaps since we don't know, uh, but we we don't know who the nominee is going to be specifically. But as you say, we do have a pretty good idea that it's likely to be either Amy Coney Barrett or Barbara Lagoa. Uh, I'm I of course uh, should be upfront with my listeners that I have a a bit of a bias here in that I am a proud graduate of the Notre Dame Law School, where. Uh, Ms. Amy Comey, Comey Barrett was a professor. And in fact, I had her as my evidence professor for one day. Uh, she taught one day of evidence and then they rearranged the schedule and I didn't have her anymore. So, uh, but, you know, obviously uh, very impressed with her and biased with her, but I'm well, sure. Well, I, I should be then interviewing you to, to glean <laughs> what we can from that one day of right, personal yes. experience. Yes. Yeah. Um, these nomination battles have gotten just more and more and more intense over time. And so, yeah, maybe it would be good to kind of review that and how we got here. And, you know, I know in your book, you talk a lot about what the real driver of all this is and why a lot of the different proposals for how to fix it aren't going to work because they don't get to the the heart of the matter. But let's, yeah, let's, let's review you know, at least as far back, how, how far back you want to go to Bork or to uh, Warren or to, you know, uh, <laughs> Justice Harlan the first. How, how about, about George Washington? Let's go back to him because <laughs> the story of politics and judicial nominations goes back to the very earliest days uh, of the Republic. The way that the framers structured the Constitution, that structured the mechanisms for appointing uh, the judiciary, uh, specifically the Supreme Court, the rest of the judiciary was to be created by by statute, by, by Congress, uh, was, of course, uh, that the president uh, will nominate and with advice and consent of the Senate will appoint justices to the Supreme Court. And uh, that means political considerations because the president is a political figure and the members of the Senate are political figures. And so from the very earliest days, George Washington had to contend with uh, regional concerns, factions within uh, and among the Federalists and maybe the, the dissenters, you know, other things, how to, how to stand up the court, which kind of figures would, would, would help uh, the, the early republic and the strength of the new federal government. And he had one of his nominees rejected, and he had two nominees who declined his nomination. So... A lot of things going back to the very beginning. You know, most presidents in our history have had some trouble in in, in making uh, appointments, uh, and historically, uh, only seventy seven percent of nominees have been confirmed. Uh, a little under three quarters have served because we we used to have this phenomenon where people would be confirmed and then declined to serve because it was not considered prestigious enough, or there were other uh, onerous burdens on them, and and so forth. But the nature of the political how politics uh, came into the process was certainly different. Inter-party factions, the issue of slavery, the issue of reconstruction and uh, regulating the railroads or the trusts or what have you, until we sort of get to the modern age. So all the history is part one of my book, uh, Supreme Disorder. 
Part two is the modern age, which I date to the, the starting in 1968, when our modern phenomenon of, of evaluating candidates, uh, judicial candidates based on their judicial philosophies really uh, began. And that, that crystallized with, with Robert Bork, whose views were demagogued and, and, and so forth. He was attacked personally as, as someone who was outside the mainstream and, and, and things like this. Uh, but at the end of the day, what we have is uh, an all-powerful central government, the centralization of power in Washington. Within Washington, the skewing of that power towards the executive branch, towards the administrative agencies. And of course, you can't unelect bureaucrats. You can only sue them. And so a lot of these disputes end up in the courts. And parallel to that power dynamic, you have divergent theories of constitutional and statutory interpretation that map onto partisan preferences at a time when uh, the parties are more ideologically sorted than they've been since at least the Civil War, if not ever. Uh, and so, of course, whenever there's a vacancy in this very powerful institution, one of nine seats, I mean, it doesn't matter if there were 15 seats, it would still be a very powerful seat. And of course, we're going to have these uh, these fraught uh, cataclysms. You, you know, this is, this is an interesting issue in that I think most people would view, you know, the, the kind of average guy on the street, the ideal would be that, you know, judges shouldn't be political, right? Um, uh, and politicizing the process of judges is bad. Yet at the same time, why do people want to do that? It's generally because uh, since the night, I mean, th there have been cycles throughout American history, but particularly since the 1960s, the court has opined on all sorts of controversial issues and taken issues uh, away from public debate and discussion, but both for the left and the right, I should say. Uh, everything from, you know, abortion to gun control to stuff with unions to First Amendment, religion. And obviously people really care about that. And so they're going to want to influence it. And since judges are not under direct democratic control, the it, it ends up, you know, affecting things, they affect things through the Senate or the presidency or whatever. So I, I don't know. It, it um, I guess the question is, is there, is there a solution there? If you don't, if you don't like how these nominations have become, how political they've gotten, A, is there a way to deal with that that doesn't involve getting the court out of deciding these sorts of issues? And then B, is it real, really realistic to not have the Supreme Court involved? Because as you say, we you know we do have a constitution, and there are radically different theories of how it should be interpreted or applied. Well, for, for one thing, we have to distinguish between the role politics plays in the nomination and confirmation process versus what the justices do once they're confirmed. I am by no means saying that the Supreme Court uh, justices, as they go about uh, 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 making their rulings, issuing their opinions, that they uh, always have been or are now. Uh, uh, political. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that 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 preparatory phase, what we're in now with the nomination and confirmation process. This is the only time, after all, when when a judge or a, or a nominee goes toe to toe with these politicians. So it's a it's a unique opportunity and a meeting of these two branches. Uh, and yeah, the solution, uh, the ultimate solution, has to be the, that the only way to to reduce the tensions is to reduce the the scope or the stakes uh, of what you're fighting about. If if the Supreme Court weren't ruling on so many 
one-size-fits-all solutions for such a large, diverse, pluralistic country, then it would matter less who occupied those seats. And so you can play around at the margins with various kinds of reforms. Term limits are probably the most promising in terms of building public confidence. So at least you wouldn't have these random and arbitrary vacancies and the morbid health watches over octogenarian justices. If you had an 18-year term limit, for example, with a vacancy every two years, then every presidential term would have exactly two uh, vacancies to fill. It would be a regular part of our election process, of our discussion. It wouldn't be trying to time retirements politically or uh, waiting somebody out as as justices age or, or what have you. But it wouldn't change the functioning of the court. The court would still be powerful. The seats would still be important. And then there are, you know, court packing or expanding the court. I mean, if, if we were writing a constitution for, from scratch, maybe we would want, you know, 19 justices because then there would be fewer 10 to 9 opinions than we currently have 5 to 4. And each one of those 19 seats would be commensurately less powerful or, 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 or less significant. Uh, but we're not uh, uh, writing a constitution from scratch. So the transition issues loom very large. And there are all sorts of other kind of more radical solutions or or maybe changing the rules of of the confirmation hearings themselves. I mean, really, that is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, uh, because the the problem is not with the process, it's the product. And the Titanic is the ship of state. Um, As I said, the centralization of power in Washington, the skewing of power within Washington, which the court has aided and abetted over the decades, this is not something that's happened overnight, uh, is ultimately uh, why we have these big clashes. And so uh, I don't have any panaceas or magic bullets. If you know, if I could snap my fingers and restructure the court, uh, that's not going to do it. It's only if I could re- snap my fingers and change a whole lot of precedents over the last 80 years to return power to the states and localities and the people, uh, as well as forcing Congress to be the one to make decisions on political controversies rather than you know writing the uh, passing the Truth, Beauty, and Goodness Act of 2020 and leaving it to the undersecretary of such and such to write the rules by which we live our lives. Those are the the, the, the deeper concerns that need to be remedied um, for uh, the toxic cloud surrounding the, the court to be dissipated. You mentioned you know, the idea of snapping your finger and, and creating reform. There were a few columns written in the past week or so uh, by uh, David French, Jonah Goldberg, and, and the other Ilya, all suggesting sort of a deal where maybe the Republicans wouldn't fill um, the empty seat based on some promise that there wouldn't be court packing. What what do you think about that conceptually and why? I mean, that seems like it's it's completely a dead letter at this point. Why, why was that ill-fated from the start? My wife actually suggested that idea to me the, the night that the Friday night after we got the news about Justice Ginsburg's passing. Um, and it, it has an appeal. It's kind of trying to de-escalate both sides. Um, but the thing is, uh, it really only becomes operative. And I think this nuance was lost in the proposals. I've seen this proposals by Jonah Goldberg, David French, Ilya Soman. It only really becomes operative if the Democrats win the White House and the Senate by a sufficient number. Because barring those two things, there's no immediate threat of court packing regardless. Um, uh, maybe in two years, I mean, in two years, it's a favorable uh, Senate map for Republicans. So the, the Democrats, if they don't win the Senate now, are unlikely to win it in, in 2022. But uh, uh, who knows? Uh, if there is not a vote uh, before the election, 
And as I said, the Democrats do have a healthy margin uh, in the Senate, uh, so it's such that uh, the Joe Manchins and Kristen Cinemas, the more moderate Democrats who are unlikely to vote to get rid of the filibuster, the, the, they don't matter all of a sudden. Then that becomes a possibility. But um, but even then, uh, you know, there's no guarantees that uh, some other uh, perceived or actual slight or aggravation won't tip the Democrats into uh, getting rid of the filibuster and court packing. So. It's uh, 87 dimensional chess, but in our world of low social trust and certainly low trust between the parties on Capitol Hill, hard to see it happening. To me, it seems like the biggest, uh, I mean, to the extent you could call it a deal, but the main incentive I would see for the Democrats not to do court packing, uh, even if they were to win a, the presidency and a sizable Senate majority, is that Next time the Republicans have a, the president and the Senate majority, they can they could pack the court too. And you know, you don't. It's not a. It's a, it, it's a um, it, it's similar to when the Democrats had a bright idea a few years ago that they were going to eliminate the filibuster for judicial nominees so they could get their nominees through, and then later they decided, oh, we would like to nominate. Uh, filibuster, I believe it was Gorsuch uh, for the Supreme Court, and the Republicans eliminated the filibuster for the Supreme Court. You know, if you if you see the current situation as a series of escalations, and we would all like to de-escalate the circumstance, but given the continued political nature of the court, is it realistic that that will happen? And if not, did things just kind of keep being one up forever, where eventually we've got, we have 251 Supreme Court justices. And, you know, every time there's a new election, the the list that the candidate puts out has to be 150 long because they they promise that they're going to double the court, you know, every single time. Well, there, there are other kind of escalations. It's not just court packing or nothing. Um, let's say, let's say Trump's reelected and the Democrats take the Senate. Uh, they could just decide not to confirm any of Trump's nominees or or some category uh, or slow walk uh, any future cabinet appointments. There are other tools in the quiver to to, to quote uh, Nancy Pelosi talking about what, what weapons she had. And actually, she doesn't have very many because the House is, uh, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't play a role in, in, in confirmations uh, and kind of the, the half-baked impeachment idea, which Yes, yes, if the House draws up, if, 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 if the House draws up a bill of impeachment, the Senate does have to drop everything else to consider it, but they can dismiss it the same day. So it wouldn't be a very, if it's if it's truly a gimmick like that, it wouldn't be a very longstanding obstacle uh, at all. Um, look, uh, we're talking, we're we're now we're we're going to be in the world of Rumsfeldian unknown unknowns, uh, just like five six years ago. Nobody could have predicted the Donald Trump presidency and good, bad, ugly, you know, whatever, however it's changed our world. Um, you know, there could be some other disruption that changes this this tit for tat kind of uh, dynamic. Uh, or we could simply be in a period um, which will you know, evolve as the, I don't know, ideological alignment of the parties uh, shifts uh, over the next decade or two. Of, of simply low confirmation rates. Between Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln, for example, only eight of 21 Supreme Court uh, nominees were confirmed. Uh, 
there have been periods of uh, you know high distrust between the parties, between the Senate and the president, and so you know this could be one particular period like that. I mean, I, I doubt we'll you know, roll back any of the changes that have been made, you know, putting back the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees or lower court nominees, but there could be an establishment of other kinds of norms uh, of various kinds. Or there could be uh, these gangs, right? We had the, the gang of 14 to prevent the nuclear option when the Republicans had the, the Senate in the, in the early 2000s. There was the gang of eight about immigration reform. I mean, all these, you know, bipartisan uh, groupings of more moderate senators uh, depends what the margins are in the Senate, of course. But it's you know we we went from Rumsfeld. Now I'm going to quote Yogi Berra that it's hard to predict uh, make predictions, especially about the future. So you know if something really is unsustainable and 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 can't go on, then it won't. But until then, we'll we'll muddle along, and there there's room for as I said, different kind of escalations. It's not just it's not just the threat of court packing. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, Joe Biden, his time on the Senate Judiciary Committee? What was his involvement in, you know, sort of the the nature of the way we we do uh, nominations and the politics of of court nominations? Sure. Yeah, the, I, I do cover this. Uh, Biden comes up a fair bit because he's been a, a longtime uh, actor on the political stage uh, in my book, uh, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the politics of America's highest court. And I actually had a, a, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal three weeks ago, specifically about why Biden is not talking about judges. And it's because of this history that he has. Uh, so in 1986, Justice Scalia was uh, confirmed unanimously to the Supreme Court. Republicans had a majority in the Senate. Uh, and Scalia was put up at the same time that Bill Rehnquist, then a justice, was uh, President Reagan tapped him to be chief justice. And he was the more controversial one. He had some memos when he was clerking for uh, Justice Jackson about Brown versus Board and other civil rights issues that were controversial. Uh, for the first time, the ACLU came out a Supreme against a, a Supreme Court nominee that was, that was Rehnquist. Uh, and so he drew all the fire. Scalia was this affable, pipe-smoking uh, Italian-American, voluble, you know, the Italian-American part was very important. Uh, a lot of uh, Democrat, uh, Italian-American members of Congress came out in support of him publicly. And then after he was confirmed, Joe Biden, after the Democrats won that fall's election, so Biden was poised to become the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, he told Reagan that, you know, if his nominee is uh, is like, uh, like Scalia at all, uh, you know, Bork, for example, uh, very intellectually serious and qualified, then there shouldn't be a problem uh, confirming him the next time. Uh, well, uh, fast forward six or eight months and Biden is on the campaign trail. That was his first run for, for president. Uh, and hearing from special interest groups and all of a sudden comes back and tells Reagan that uh, Biden, uh, that, that Bork would be a very heavy lift. And indeed, uh, although Ted Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, also a former Judiciary Committee chairman, led the assault uh, on Bork 45 minutes after the nomination, he went to the Senate floor, Kennedy did, to uh, read out uh, a calumny of what uh, Robert Bork's America would look like. But Biden was the chairman and and uh, ran uh, the hearings that were meant to uh, make Bork look bad. I mean, Bork had a, a part in that. He, he was looking to score debaters points rather than get votes. And the Republican strategy was kind of on its back foot. But, but anyway, uh, Biden was a, a key player in that Borking, as it's now known. Four years later, when Clarence Thomas was nominated, Biden was again the chairman and tried to please everyone and ended up pleasing nobody, you know, asked uh, weird questions, kind of misattributed quotes, 
And then, of course, reopened the hearings uh, after the Anita Hill allegations came out. Last year, 2019, when Biden uh, began his final run for the presidency, he tried to apologize to Anita Hill, and uh, she didn't accept his apology, but but no apology to, to Thomas was forthcoming. And then uh, the following year, we had the origin of the Biden rule when, when Joe Biden went to the floor of the Senate in June 1992 and said that George H.W. Bush should not make any more nominations to the Supreme Court if uh, if a vacancy arises. And that would come back to bite now Vice President Biden uh, after Scalia died and, and President Obama nominated Merrick Garland. So Biden presents himself as this kind of affable, backslapping, old school politician. Uh, but on the on judicial nominations, uh, he's been very hard-edged and divisive and elbow-throwing. Oh, he also was one of, I think it was 25 Democrats who voted against uh, John Roberts. Uh, the Democrats were about split on his nomination. And he was one of uh, 24 or 25 Democrats who tried to filibuster Sam Alito. Again, about half the caucus went along with that attempted filibuster. That includes John Kerry, uh, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Chuck Schumer, uh, and Joe Biden. So uh, very much kind of, you know, I don't know what principles Joe Biden has in his heart of hearts, uh, but very much goes along with the more activist, uh, uh, aggressive uh, wing of his party on judicial nominations. Let me ask about the hearings, what we're likely to see from the hearings. You noted that with the nomination of Robert Bork, one of his problems was that he was a little too uh, forthcoming, I guess you might say. Uh treated the whole thing like it was a honest conversation as opposed to a congressional hearing. And I think, uh, I think you've also noted that as a, perhaps as a result of that, since that time, judges, they don't really, the nominees don't really say much in their confirmation hearings. In fact, some of them have gotten very accomplished at being able to avoid getting pinned down on anything uh, to the point that really the only time uh, anything of interest happens at the confirmation hearings is if there's some personal allegation uh, or something like with with Kavanaugh or with uh, Justice Thomas, uh, you know, allegations of sexual impropriety. With that said, I know there's been talk about maybe the d- d- Democrats will boycott the hearings to show that it's illegitimate. D- do you think that there are still value that comes from having these hearings? What do you expect to come out of them? Well, in my book, I actually come out with the conclusion that public hearings for Supreme Court nominations are now, I think, uh, inflict a greater cost on our public discourse than any benefit we get from learning either about the nominee or the judicial process or or the state of the law, um, especially in this day and age with, uh, with the internet, with uh, paper trails and all these people. We can, you know, whoever wants to study it can read their opinions and writings and uh, watch their appearances and 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 so forth uh without the need for either gotcha grandstanding or this artificial kabuki exercise of the nominees uh as you alluded to being coached to talk a lot without saying anything and and Justice Ginsburg certainly refined that tactic set the standard uh in 1993 uh, with kind of a pincer movement saying that she couldn't comment on specifics that might come before the court uh, and that uh, a judge should not be speaking about hypotheticals either. And, and Bork avoided that. He, he, he you know, thought that this was an oral exam and he wanted to kind of lecture in an academic tone and explain uh, everything, which was not 
not effective uh, as a, in the political process of, of, of getting confirmed. So, yeah, I, I, I think at this point, uh, you know, the Democrats might boycott that it might actually be more effective than anything else they try to do, you know, and then simply run against that for the election if it's before the election. Uh, one interesting thing, if they don't boycott, is you would have the unprecedented scenario of the vice presidential nominee, Kamala Harris, who is on the Senate Judiciary Committee, to be questioning the Supreme Court nominee. If that happens, that will certainly be a moment both in the confirmation process and in this election campaign. So watch for that. To bring things around, you know, we're obviously focused a lot on the future, what the nominee is going to be, what they're going to be like, what the pro and the general process. But let's just take a minute to talk about the legacy and career of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, Obviously, had a, a significant legal career before she got on the court and then on the court became one of the liberal stalwarts, had a a kind of a fan club, if you will, out in the broader public in the way that a lot of justices don't. What is your take on on her tenure as a lawyer and her life and what her legacy is going to be going forward? Lots of people have called her the Thurgood Marshall of the women's legal movement. Uh, That is the path-breaking public interest litigator, uh, pushing back against uh, uh, sex discrimination in the law in various ways, very strategic, often having men as clients, uh, going and challenging um, uh, sexual stereotypes, gender stereotypes that have uh, that had been codified uh, in the law. When she joined the D.C. Circuit, uh, she became very methodical and, and workmanlike, and her opinions were very dry. It was administrative law, uh, it was civil procedure, those kinds of technical things, combined with a speech that she had given uh, saying that the Supreme Court had overreached in Roe v. Wade and should have gone about protecting uh, the, the abortion right in a different way and perhaps not so quickly so as not to rile all of our politics and, and change our legal discourse. Those things made some progressive activist groups nervous when she was nominated to the court, which is uh, which is hilarious in retrospect. It's amazing, right? Because she has become this heroine of the left, the notorious RBG, who is part of a Saturday Night Live skits uh, these days. And she'll go down as a as a liberal lion, uh, a counterpart to Scalia uh, on the right. There are a lot of parallels uh, to their passings and what, what that created for our political world. Um, she didn't have too many notable majority opinions just because of the makeup of the court and the lineup of cases. Her most famous majority opinion is undoubtedly Virginia versus United States, saying that uh, Virginia's military academy, VMI, had to admit women. Uh, but in the last decade, she's become known for her dissents. And that's really when uh, you know her, her status has increased after, after Justice Stevens uh, uh, resigned from the court or retired, she became the, the the leader of the liberal wing of the court. And whether in the Ledbetter case about pay discrimination, Shelby County on voting rights, uh, NFIB versus Sebelius, where John Roberts famously called Obamacare's individual mandate a tax, she dissented separately even from the Commerce Clause analysis. Um, Trump versus Hawaii, the uh, the travel ban case, this past term in Little Sisters, it was a seven to two decision on administrative law, but she was still maintaining that that left wing uh, flank. Uh, and so um, combined with her professionalism, being a nice person, being a workaholic, her relationships with her clerks and her and her fellow justices, you know, she's now the 
the the first woman ever to lie in state. Very significant uh, to our country. Uh, she'll be missed. Uh, those are going to be big uh, robes or a, or a big jabot to what people call that neck doily that she wore uh, to fill. Our guest today has been Ilya Shapiro. Thank you very much for joining us again. My pleasure. Take care.